Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. My name is Kenna. I'm Koal. And get fucking ready. Because <laughs> this is going to be a doozy. A doozy. It's a doozy. It's a doozy. off i just want to shout everyone out lately that's been messaging us and emailing us and you know just sending us texts and stuff if y'all have our personal contact we've been getting a lot of really cool messages and stuff especially on instagram we've heard from you know a couple different podcasts that have reached out to us which is really cool and brady from movication the podcast that we've plugged a couple of times ago messaged and said that he was he was glad that you put the rocky comment in the son of sam episode because Mm -hmm. he was like i didn't know anyone else knew that like that's a really cool you know addition to the show and everything like that so (laughs) i got to chat with him for a minute but thank you guys so much for continuously reaching out and downloading and donating to the Patreon and all that good stuff. Um, again, just to remind everyone, all of our handles are at Diagnosing a Killer, with the exception of Twitter, which is at Killer Diagnosis. Email is the same thing, at Diagnosing a Killer, and then Patreon.com slash Diagnosing a Killer. Just to let everyone know. Yeah, and just to remind everybody, our sponsor links are going to be in the description below. So if anybody wants to get some good Valentine's Day goodies, or if you want to be a sponsor, just email us. Um... And yeah, we'll talk about it. Cool. Did you take your sandals back? No, there's uh, there's two pairs. I gave you my extra pair. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I'm wearing shoes right now. With socks. <laughs> jandals with socks. Jandals with socks. Yeah. Are jandals like Jesus sandals? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, because that's definitely what These they look like. These are my favorite. Dang, I was like really cold when I sat down and now I'm hot. It's <laughs> <laughs> warm in here really quick. Well, I hope everyone is ready. I'm sure that you know who we're going to be talking about if you clicked on this episode because it says it in the title. But as per usual, Coel does not know who I'm talking about. <laughs> and this is going to be a fucking doozy. Like I said that earlier, but I am being real, real with it. I want to throw a huge content warning over this episode. I'll put it in the show notes as well. But this is a lot of victims that we have and it's gonna probably be about 30 good 30 minutes of me just listing victims back to back to back so I know that is a lot of content we will do our best to kind of insert some chatter here and there so it's not just you know all of that for an hour Um, but it does get a little heavy as far as the amount of victims and it's not super graphic with the mo or anything like that but it's just a lot of victims and a lot of content okay so just let everyone know now I'm curious. I know. <laughs> like, who else could it be? All right. So without further ado, we are going to get right into the case. Today, we are going to be talking about Gary Leon Ridgway, a.k.a. the Green River Killer. Ooh, Green River. <laughs> yeah. Okay, not who I thought you were going to be bringing, oh, but really? I'm still excited. <laughs> so we talk about Green River a lot. I feel like he's come up in a lot of episodes. You're like, was that Green River? No, was that Green River? Like, I don't remember what he did, blah, blah, blah. So I'm going to tell you what he did, because this guy is a <laughs> fucking monster. And it's a lot. <laughs> Again, just to let everyone know. Does he go by any other aliases? 
Not that I read. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have a so list of cool said. nicknames. Yeah. <laughs> I like the following. How about you? Oh my god, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> So, Gary Leon Ridgway was born on February 18, 1949, in Salt Lake City, Utah, to Thomas Newton Ridgway and Mary Rita Ridgway. He was the second of three boys, his older brother being Gregory Ridgway, born in 1948, and younger brother being Thomas Edward Ridgway, born in 1951. Gotta love a middle child syndrome. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's already, like, doomed. <laughs> His father, Thomas, was a bus driver, while his mother, Mary, was a sales clerk at JCPenney. Oh. <laughs> um, the boys, unfortunately, had a less-than-perfect childhood, with their parents frequently arguing in front of them, and his mother being described as domineering by multiple relatives. Interesting. So she wore the pants. In the 50s, right? In the 50s. She wore the pants. Okay, I see, I see. Yeah. It was noted that all three of the boys and the father alike suffered verbal, physical, and sexual abuse at the hands of Mary. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Really domineering. Oh no. How far apart were the boys? I'm sorry. With all within a year. All within a year of each other. It's like 1948, 1949, and then 1951. Okay, so they're all, okay. They're all really close in age. The only reason I ask is because after Menendez, they were pretty, well, I wouldn't say very close in age. Well, they were about two, three years apart. Mm -hmm. Just how much you can, like, want to lean on one another if you're all experiencing the same thing. Absolutely. Um, Now, it's not clear if all of them suffered all types of this abuse, but she was noted as being the alpha of the family, and... Just really taking advantage of, again, her sons and her husband alike. Since the father, Thomas, was a bus driver, he would be around town most of the day, and a young Gary remembers him frequently complaining about the presence of sex workers in the area that they lived. Hmm. He would complain, like, there's a lot of people on the streets, and there's sex workers, and he would say some really ugly things about, you know, their lifestyle and their, Mm -hmm. you know, how they make money and all that stuff, so... When Gary was 11, the family moved to SeaTac, Washington, where they would spend most of the kids' time growing up. Oh, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> I guess what? It, I guess it kind of made sense, but I wrote what it weird. Did, wait, what did you want to Where they would again? spend most of the kids' time growing up. I mean, it makes sense, kind of, but I shouldn't. Okay. Where the kids would spend most of their time. Yeah, up. most of the kids' time. Most of the kids' and time. And content he slit her warning throat. <laughs> Slitter warning throughout. I listened to that the other day, too. So funny. When Gary was 11, the family moved to SeaTac, Washington, and... Washington. (laughs) Why did I say it? SeaTac, Washington. Like, you have a a vendetta against Washington. Like, I had to, like... I was, like, reporting that. Washington. (laughs) This is where the kids would spend most of their time growing up. Okay. Okay, Let's just leave it at that. Okay. (laughs) I'm not going to say it again. Now, we've talked about the McDonald triad a lot. One of the three criterion, Gary had a problem with bedwetting as a child and up until he was 13 years old. Wow. Now, if anyone hasn't listened to that episode about that, um, the McDonald triad, again, is three things that um, will suggest that someone will be a serial offender later in life. And it is bedwetting past a certain age. And if it's later than the age of 10, it's usually a sign of either sexual abuse or this McDonald triad. Mm-hmm. Which, in this case, it's kind of both. It's both. <laughs> Unfortunately. What are the other two? The other two are animal abuse and arson, like setting s- small fires. Are we getting there? Yes, we are, actually. Um, content warning for this next part. This does have to do with sexual abuse on a child. 
Gary would later relay that whenever he would wet the bed, his mother would punish him by putting him in a cold bath, and she would also force him to let her wash his genitals for him until the age of 13. 13? Pretty gross. That's so old. And that's, yeah, that's really old for that. I mean, obviously, it's a baby. Like, you know, they can't do it themselves, but that's so ugly. (laughs) Um, Due to this abuse by his mother, Gary developed conflicting feelings of anger and sexual attraction to his mother at a young age, even showing signs of an Oedipus complex. But also, he would fantasize about killing her because she was, quote, a big problem. Because she was just so hostile. He was just conflicted because he's experiencing this sexual abuse, but also this anger and verbal abuse. So he's like... Oh, that's awful. It's terrible. And those are like formative years for that, you know. Gary attended Chinook Junior High School and Taiyi High School in SeaTac, where he was known for being socially well-adapted by his classmates. Mm, Those are weird words. Yeah, all of those words. (laughs) Taiyi High School and SeaTac. Content warning. It is known that during this time, he also experimented with arson mm-hmm. and was also noted as killing a cat by trapping it in a freezer. Mm-hmm. I oh, know. That's awful. So already he's meeting the full criterion for the McDonald triad. Mm-hmm. You can see where this is going. I mean, it's it's not called diagnosing <laughs> it's not, a divorce. <laughs> yeah, it's not called diagnosing a divorce. It's also not diagnosing this child that eventually sought help and then everything was hunky-dory. Yeah. Happily ever after. Happily ever after. That's terrible. And it sucks because, like, he had it... I mean, as we see with most of the people that we talk about, they had it really fucking shitty growing up. Yeah. You know? So, yeah. I mean, not... It's not on the child to seek help. Yeah, of course. But everybody else, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Be standing up and saying something at this point. Although he was a troubled kid on the inside, his classmates described him as the opposite of whatever we would hear. Social, nice, and well-liked. Gary was not the brightest student, however, and his older brother Gregory was actually widely regarded as the most accomplished sibling outshining Gary. Oh, I love that. Cute. Love that. Do you remember Robert Bradella's dad, like, idolized his older son and he, like, wanted to disown his other son that he named after himself? Like, he's like, I know I named you after me, like, Robert Jr., but, like, your other son's, my other son's better than you. But he's, like, so much better. (laughs) Like, what the hell? By, like, Miles. Gary actually had an IQ of 82. So that's like the average right, is yeah. 100. So it's lower than average. Yeah. I think the it's like 75, I think, is considered a need of assistance. Of yeah. Some kind. Yeah. Um, he actually reported suffering from dyslexia, paving the way for him to be held back a year in high school. Hmm. In high school, I feel like that's so late. To yeah. Be- diagnosed with dyslexia that's well, usually something that happens in like elementary school when you start to elementary. read and write yeah yeah exactly so i'm not sure maybe it just like he had it and it was undiagnosed and then it just like really i'm sure nobody him. i'm sure nobody paid attention to his homework oh of course not so content warning at the age of 16 gary came across a six-year-old boy that was dressed up as a cowboy and playing with a stick in a wooded area near his home gary asked the young boy if he wanted to go build a fort And moments later, Gary stabbed the boy with a folding knife in his abdomen, puncturing through his ribs and into his liver. Well, that escalated quickly. Yeah. He's 16. Again, already met the McDonald triad, so he's clearly been having these thoughts and the frustration towards his mother, not making it okay. But at 16? (sighs) And he just, he happened upon this kid, you said playing in a wooded area. Just a neighborhood kid. 
not like in the front yard or anything, but no, still. No, but it's just a neighborhood kid. Like, see me like one of his neighbors. He was walking around with that knife on purpose. Oh, of course. He was either going to kill a person or an or animal. Or an animal. Yeah, exactly. Maybe that's why he went to the woods to find an animal. Yeah. The six-year-old boy was noted as saying, quote, why did you kill me? As blood rushed into his cowboy boots. No. Gary walked away laughing as the boy bled out, later admitting, quote, I always wanted to know what it felt like to kill someone. The six-year-old boy suffered serious injuries, but ultimately survived the attack. Oh, gosh. I know. Let's get everyone take a deep breath. Ooh. That's so awful. Though. That is awful. Having uh, to be a six-year-old having to say, why did you kill me? Like, he has no concept of what that really means. Right. Ugh. Around this same time, Gary was noted as sexually assaulting a girl at school, but he was never suspected for or arrested for either of these crimes, the stabbing or the sexual assault. Wow. This is like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to this case. Like, it is going to be a heavy case. I'm still warning everyone. He's 16. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a month to research this because I kept having to stop. I was like, okay, I can't <laughs> keep going with this. Yeah. Throughout high school, Gary was still the same socially acceptable, charming, quote-unquote, normal kid, even having no trouble finding dates or girlfriends. Okay, Bundy. Right. Gary graduated from high school in 1969 at 20 years old and married his high school sweetheart, 19-year-old Claudia Craig, shortly after graduating. There it is. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, always, it's always the quick marriage. I know. Always. But he gradu- okay, so he graduated two years late. Essentially. I think he was just an older kid because he was only held back one year and then he just happened oh, to be I 20. Oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I just can't believe being the, like, like I'm the only 20-year-old. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's just a little... And then he just met, he met homegirl at, That's in cool. high school. Yeah. And just straight up married her. Married her us. All right. Well. Scooped her right on up. And what was her name? Claudia Craig. Okay, Claudia. I see you, Claudia. <laughs> you always say it like it's their fault. <laughs> like, all right, Claudia, we see you. I know. We see you, Claudia. <laughs> Where's the poop, Claudia? (laughs) Shortly after getting married, Gary was drafted to the United States Army and left for Vietnam, where he served on board a supply ship and witnessed intense combat. Mm, That's that's totally healthy for somebody who's already experiencing this shit. That's totally healthy. During the two years he was in the military, Gary was known to have had sex with multiple sex workers and ultimately contracted gonorrhea because of his antics. Who does that sound like? Berkowitz. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking that too. I was like, oh my god. Oh, Burke. God, it's awful. And the fact that he's utilizing sex workers for this, it's yeah. like, whoa, your dad said that sex workers were like, you know, not good. He's he's all angry about them. So the fact that he's like participating in that right. is interesting to me. Well, you know... I I think about that sometimes, too, when it's like the pendulum swings the other way, and it's like, well, what's so bad about this? Like, I need to figure it out on my own. Yeah, that's true. kind of the same way with, I mean, people that abuse drugs. Sometimes people that are drug addicts are people that grew up with parents that were, like, completely straight, you know, things like that. Not to, like, put everybody in a bucket, but what I'm saying is that sometimes the temptation is what kind of makes you want to do it yeah. because you've been told no your whole life and you're like, well, what's so wrong with that? Yeah. Let me figure it out. Let me figure this out. Let me figure this out on my own. Get gonorrhea. Get gonorrhea. <laughs> Although Gary was angered by the fact that he had contracted this STD, he continued to have unprotected sex with many different women <gasps> and before he returned home, him and Claudia would divorce. 
So she, I guess he, like, told her she found she out or something. Gonorrhea. No, he he left. She was at home. He left. He got it. I'm sure he told her, like, via the phone or writing well, or whatever. he was over in Vietnam. Yeah. Oh, okay. So before he would return home, she would be, like, gone, pretty much. Probably because of the gonorrhea. Probably so, <laughs> I would imagine. <laughs> After returning home, some time had passed with Gary working as a truck painter, but ultimately falling into another quick marriage with a woman named Marcia Lorraine Brown in 1973. All right. Claudia's off the hook, but Marcia. Yeah. I see you, girl. She- <laughs> Marcia, see we see you. you, girl. I see you, girl. We see you. A few years into their marriage in 1975, the couple would offer would offer, <laughs> offer a baby boy. <laughs> I don't know why I said offer. <laughs> offer up their baby boy <laughs> to the they gonorrhea were- gods just to get rid of it. <laughs> They would welcome a baby boy. I don't know where the term offer came (laughs) (laughs) They had a baby boy named Matthew. Matthew (laughs) Ridgeway. God. In 1975. Okay. The birth of his son showed Gary a new way of looking at the world, and he was noted as becoming devoutly religious around the same time. We've heard that before, too. Mm -hmm. He was known to go door-to-door reading the word to anyone who would listen, He would read the Bible aloud at work and at home, and he was also very insistent that Marcia become as involved as he was in his faith. Presumed. Yeah, so he wants her to, like, he's like, you have to call me the colonel. Like, she wants her to be (laughs) (laughs) as religious as he is. (laughs) You have to call him Jesus Christ. (laughs) Gary was also known to frequently cry after sermons or reading the Bible and would follow the strict teachings of his pastor to a T. Oh, I could not hang. I could not. I couldn't. I couldn't like, I couldn't bro, hang. don't shove your shit down my throat. I'm sorry. I could not hang that way, no. Despite his extreme religious beliefs, Gary was also continuing to solicit sex workers during this time. And even tried to encourage Marcia to participate in sex in public and inappropriate places. What? I am the best Christian in the world. Let me hire a sex worker. <laughs> Yeah. Did anybody talk to you about our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ just hanging out the door? That's disgusting. Yeah. Oh my. Oof. This is kind of gross. It was later. But it hasn't been gross yet, but go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's all gross. If none of this he has been even gross off- yet. He even offered up his baby. <laughs> it was later. No, this is actually kind of morbid. Sorry. Okay. It was later discovered that some of these places that he wanted to do the deed with his wife were in the same places his future victims would be found. <gasps> yeah. Like, he had a favorite park bench, or... I don't know if he, like, knew when he was going to have victims and put them there later, or if he was like, I remember this spot, my wife wouldn't have sex with me here, let me just do this here, you know? <laughs> it's the real world. It's yeah. the real world, like... I don't know. Okay. But yeah. But either way, he liked these. Maybe because they were secluded locations. Yeah. yeah and maybe sure. he found them to be quite serene, perhaps. Terrible deed for the serene area. No, of course. Along with all of his other bizarre behaviors, Marcia claimed that Gary also put her in a chokehold at one point during this same time period. Like, in an argument, seemingly. Oh my gosh. Or during sex. Yeah. Well, funny you say that, because according to the women in his life... Gary had an aggressively insatiable sexual appetite. His past wives and girlfriends would later tell sources that he demanded sex from them multiple times a day, often in public areas or in the woods. Hmm. 
Gary later admitted that he had a strange fixation with sex workers, but he also had a love-hate relationship with them. Because, I guess, his father, I don't know. And his mother. And and the gonorrhea. Yeah. He would frequently complain about their presence in his neighborhood, similarly to his father. But often seek out their services as well. Gary, you're the one that's... your fucking mind. (laughs) Gary, you're inviting them into the neighborhood, bro. What are you talking about? They're there for you. They're they're for you. They're looking for you. (laughs) He would later claim that he did not want anything to do with the sex working community, but some people believe that he was simply torn between his sexual urges and his religious beliefs, causing him to retract his statements, like, all the time. Oh, baby. I know, he's just so torn. He just just doesn't know who he is. I don't know what to do. I want to be good, but I can't. (laughs) Good. Good. I want to be good, but I can't. All these prostitutes in my neighborhood, I don't know what to do. I went to Thai High School. (laughs) I went to Thai High School in Chicago Goo Goo Doo. (laughs) (laughs) Stop paying them, Gary. They won't come around. For real. So the next several years are kind of like a blank spot in Gary's life, but it is believed that he just laid low and worked the same job during this time. Uh, We're now going to be into, like, 1970. So it's believed that Gary Ridgway could have committed his heinous crimes as early as 1970, but there is no concrete evidence to support that idea. However, in 1980, Gary was arrested for allegedly choking a prostitute, but no charges were filed after he claimed that the woman had bit him and it was (laughs) self-defense. I'm sorry. Yeah, like... Monch, and then you're just like... Like, I mean, you don't... You punch you punch somebody out of self defense. You don't or hit them with something. Them. You don't strangle them. Yeah, that's weird. Eight years into their marriage in 1981, Marcia had had enough of Gary's bizarre behavior, and she filed for divorce. Good for you, Marcia. <sighs> Newly single, lonely, and angry, Gary began to change his focus from religion to crime. <laughs> dun 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 dun. In 1982, Gary was arrested and charged with soliciting sex work, but it seems like he was able to make bail or got off on small charges because he didn't serve any time, like, jail time for this offense at Mm -hmm. all. After being released, Gary began what would become nearly a decade-long killing spree, totaling at least 71 victims during this time. Oh my gosh. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's why I said this episode a fucking lot. With his anger towards sex workers and his rage inside, Gary decided that he would take out his anger on the sex work community. We've heard this before. He figured they were vulnerable members of society who were often avoiding the police due to how they made a living. But Gary did not just want to engage in rough sex with them. He wanted to kill as many as he could. He went in with the like idea, like, I'm not just going to hire these people, and it was an impulsive decision. He's like, I'm going to kill these people. It's all premeditated, like he... Yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. Now, this is where I'm going to start listing the victims. Again, this is a lot of content back-to-back, so bear with me. We'll take short breaks in between, but uh, just to let everyone know, content warning. Also, another content warning, the youngest victim is as young as 14, just to let everyone know. 14 and up. <sighs> Gary's first confirmed victim was 16-year-old Wendy Lee Cofield, who was living in foster care at the time of her murder and engaging in sex work. In July 1982, Wendy had run away from her foster home and was on the streets when Gary picked her up off of State Route 99 in King County, Washington. She's a child. I know. His M.O. remained the same throughout his entire murder career. He would sometimes show victims a photo of his son to make himself appear harmless and then trick them into trusting him. What an 
ass. That's so fucking disgusting that you would use your child to murder people. It gets worse. It was even noted that he would pick up the girls sometimes after picking up his son from school (gasps) and engage in sex with them in the car while Matthew was there. What the fuck? When he was a baby. It's noted... I saw it in two different sources that one source said it happened once, other sources said it happened multiple times, but either fucking way, that's it disgusting. Doesn't, yeah, it doesn't matter if it happens once or yeah. ten times. It's yeah. just awful. They're like, oh, he's like, oh, look at my cute son in the back. We're just a harmless, you know, father-son yeah. duo. He's just a mush head. Don't worry about him. Mush <laughs> head. <laughs> <laughs> no. Oh, I used to call my son a mush head when he was little, little. Like, because they're just like little mushy sponges. Yeah. So they're just <laughs> so yeah. squishy. Yeah. So I used to call him a mush head. It's a little mush head. That's funny. But they're still capable of retaining memory. No, like, yeah, not- for sure. And this is absolutely awful. I'm just gonna yeah. I'm just gonna throw another content warning out here since we broke the ice a little bit there. Um He would then either bring them back to his house or engage in sexual activity elsewhere where he would initiate sex with them while himself being behind the woman. Like that was like the way that he kind of got the upper hand, if okay. you will. Yeah. After several minutes of intercourse, Gary would reach forward and wrap his forearm around the women's necks, using the other arm to pull it backwards as hard as he could, strangling them in the process. And killing them? That's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. It is suspected that this is the same fate that Wendy met during her time with him. (sighs) I know. Wendy was found on July 15th, floating in the Green River, completely nude, with her clothes wrapped tightly around her neck. Gary's second victim, Giselle Ann Lovorn, disappeared just two days after Wendy's body was found, her body being discovered similarly to Wendy's. Deborah Lynn Bonner, 22, went missing in late July of 1982, shortly after these two girls were killed, and she was also discovered in the Green River. A total of five victims were found in the Green River, and they were actually named as the Green River Murders, but when they realized that he was killing more, they they dubbed him the uh, Green River Killer. Okay, yeah. So it wasn't... So they thought it might have been like, oh, these five women. Yeah. And then no more. But yeah. then, but he's an active killer now, so exactly. they call him a killer. Okay. And um, I'm sure that we've kind of already noticed a bunch of dates and stuff. Every victim that I've listed, I listed the date that they went missing and then the date that they were found. So I'll be as clear as I can, but just to let everyone know, there's going to be a lot of dates kind of thrown around. Yeah, it's going to be like kind of overlapping Yeah, kind yeah. of. Okay. Because it, it, it's really telling like how long it took them to be found, right? right? So that's why I wanted to include that. Yeah, that was like from July to like September Yeah, on one of those. Yeah. And just to let everyone know as well, um, I know I've said content warning a bunch of times, but this next part is fucking disgusting, like out of a horror book. So just to let everyone know. The difference in these two murders from Wendy's, however, was that they were not just strangled and dumped, but they actually had rocks placed inside of their genitals. Gary later confessed that he did this because he would come back to the deceased bodies and sexually defile them multiple times after dumping them. It's like Ted Bundy. That's fucking gross. It's disgusting. It's just, I I literally can't even fucking imagine the smell. Do you, yeah, just, I don't understand. I don't understand. (laughs) Like, I'm, the shock. Yeah. Yeah. 
He also later explained that he did not find necrophilia more sexually satisfying than regular sex, but that having sex with the deceased reduced his need to obtain a living victim, thus limiting his risk of being caught. Oh, so he's a fucking hero. Yeah. He's a fucking hero. He's At least like, I'm not taking, I mean, like, alive people Another anymore. life, yeah. Like, I'm just defiling the bodies of my previous victims. Yeah. That's disgusting. Oh my god. I know it's it's really it's really awful. Man, this guy is a <sighs> I know this guy's a mess. On top of taking this precaution, he would also frequently leave cigarette butts and gum at the sites of his victims, even though he didn't smoke, just to throw detectives off of his trail. Oh, they're like, oh, we're like, looking for a he's smoker, a, he's and he's a like, genius. I don't smoke, <laughs> and I don't chew gum. <laughs> I came here to smoke cigarettes How do you and chew gum. That? I'm all out of gum. <laughs> God, silly. It's so dumb. He would sometimes move bodies from their original sites as well in order to confuse investigators. Because um, they would maybe find, like, some sort of remains somewhere and then, like, others elsewhere. I don't, yeah. I don't know. On August 15th, 1982, three more bodies were found. 17-year-old Cynthia Jean Hines was found naked in the shallow water along with the body of 31-year-old Marcia Faye Chapman. But not his, not his, not his ex- wife, oh, okay. not his ex-wife, but still. Okay. But yeah, that's, wow, what a weird connection. Yeah. Nearby in the undergrowth lay the body of Opal Charmaine Mills, 16, with blue shorts knotted around her neck, her breasts exposed, and with bruises on her arms and legs. Detective David Reichert was one of the first to arrive on the scene. Now, let's remember that name because he comes back way later, but he is one of the first to arrive on this scene and he follows this guy through the entire process. I already forgot what his name was. What David was Reichert. David Reichert? <laughs> yeah, like R-E-I-C-H-E-R-T. Reichert. Reichert. The following day, August 16th, the King County Sheriff's Office set up the Green River Task Force to investigate the killings. Now, they were already serious about it. Oh, yeah. And the body count continued to rise. More victims being discovered along the river and in the areas around the Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. So, he has now two common dump sites, if you will. Okay. So why aren't they patrolling them? Right. I don't know. <laughs> well, along the river, I guess that can be like anywhere along the river, so but I, you know. Dad always loves that. Oh, uh, we're going to, we're going to hit up this place. It's be, uh, known to be a, a, a crack den. And it's like, well, if it's a known crack den, yeah. why aren't you doing anything about <laughs> <Exactly>. it? <laughs> it's a known drug house. Oh shit. <laughs> along with David Reichert, Robert Keppel was also lead on this task force and the two put together made an amazing team. Unfortunately, the team could only do so much, and Gary Ridgway was able to keep killing for many years, his victim count reaching nearly 40 at this point. What? Reichert said about the findings of the bodies, quote, Every time you found a body, it was like being hit on the head with a baseball bat. Now I'm going to continue with the victims. On August 29, 1982, Terry Renee Milligan, 16, disappeared. She was living with a boyfriend at the time of her disappearance and was last seen near South 144th Street and Pacific Highway South. Her body was found on April 1st of 84, so two years later. Oh my gosh. The victim of a homicide at the hands of Gary. On September 15th, 1982, 18-year-old Mary Bridget Meehan was on a walk when she was picked up by Gary, never to be seen again. The remains were found a year and two months after her disappearance near Taiyi Golf Course. On September 20th, so just five days later, Deborah Lorraine Estes, 15, had run away from home when she was picked up by Gary Ridgway. 
Her body was found in June of 88, so six years later. And she left behind a younger sister. Wow. She also had an older brother named Luther that had died in an auto accident before she ran away. What? So, her, so their parents sad. lost two babies. I know. Like within a year. Yeah. I mean, she disappeared. Her body well, wasn't found for six years, yeah. but she was gone. Oh my gosh. I know. Do you think there's a reason that like he's seeking out specifically these younger people other than there was a 31 year old victim, but other than that, they're, they're well, all teenage runaways. He doesn't think anyone's going to come yeah. looking for them. That's true. They're Do you think he workers. asks first how old they are? I don't think. I think he just think he liked just younger looking people. Yeah. Maybe. But like, what is the connection? Do you think for him, like high school sucked, so like he likes that era. I think he hated women because his mom. Yeah. I think maybe because he was young at the time that she, you know, was still assaulting him. Maybe yeah. that's why he targeted young people. He didn't like sex workers because of his dad, or maybe he was uncomfortable with himself like enjoying the company of sex workers and so he killed them so that no one else found out that he like you know was doing it you know yeah there's a bunch of different reasons clearly a pedophile too so yeah of course but uh yeah no i i find that really interesting because you know there's always that it's always one of those things like i i don't necessarily trust somebody that doesn't have people their own age that they hang out with yeah of course and so it's kind of just one of those things like you know i mean there's definitely somebody that I used to know that only hangs out with people that are, like, 18, 19, 20. That's so gross. And, like... I don't hang out with those age people. Yeah. Like, and, like, he's in his 30s. And ugh. it's like, uh, you know? Yeah, no thank you. It just shows your maturity level is what I'm saying. Of course, yeah. And I'm not well, saying that the clearly... the IQ thing, too. Yeah, but clearly he's not in it for a long-term relationship. I'm just saying, yeah. you know, that Gary seems like it just... My, what I'm saying is that it's trying to recapture something, but I just, I kind of wish yeah. that I knew a little bit more about, like, why. Yeah, like, well, his psyche is is very odd. Again, but he has that low IQ. Maybe that's the people that he can relate to the most because his brain is not as developed as someone his age. That's a very been, good point. You know? He was probably a very angry kid in high school, too. Oh, for sure. So that, that might be another thing, too. Yeah. Interesting. Now, on September 26th, 1982, Linda Jane Rule, or Janie, was last seen. Her body was found in January of 83, so a couple months later, on the campus of Northwest Hospital. October 8, 1982, 23-year-old Denise Darcel Bush was last seen, and her remains would not be found until February of 1990. Whoa, that's a long time later. And if we really think about it, I know I'm saying a lot of dates, but like that was September 26th and then October 8th, where two girls went missing. Like, that's what less than two weeks in between yeah. and he's you know he's um kidnapping another person investigators later discovered that some of denise's remains had been found five years prior in a different location but they did not find the remainder of her body until 1990 i, I said earlier that he would move some of his um victims so to like confuse them well not maybe not dismemberment but after a certain amount of decomposition yeah maybe. Yeah. yeah that's what i'm thinking because i don't think he dismembered his victims at all. Yeah, it doesn't seem like that's a goal of his. The next day, October 9th, 1982, Shonda Lee Summers, 17, was last seen along Pacific Highway South near 144th. That was where another girl was last seen recently. Yeah. It took nearly a month for her to be reported as a missing person, and her body was found 10 months later just north of SeaTac Airport. Not sure why it took her longer than others to be reported, but again, these are 
potential runaways, their, you know, sex workers are probably not checking yeah, in, you know, every day at true. home. That's true. And and not just checking every day at home, but it, it could be like, I'm going to go stay with my friend for a few weeks. Yeah, exactly. And they think, you know, their parents think they're safe or whatever. And in reality, they've run away. Yeah. Sometime between October 20th and 22nd, 18-year-old Shirley Marie Sherrill was last seen after having lunch with a friend in Seattle's International District. Her remains were found nearly two years later in June of 1984, alongside those of Denise Bush. Okay, so very, twice. There's been already, like, multiple sites that have had multiple victims as well. But since they were found so much longer in the the future, like, Mm -hmm. who knows what kind of remains they were, you know? On December 3rd, 1982... 20-year-old mother Rebecca Becky Marrero disappeared around South 216th and Pacific Highway South. Her remains were found next to another victim. She was reportedly friends with previous victim Deborah Estes. So, I don't know if he knew that or not, but... Who did that? I think that was Andre Chikatilo, right? He kidnapped a girl and and then kidnapped her friend later, too. Yeah, I remember that. December 24th, 1982, Christmas Eve... Colleen Renee Brockman, 15, and Sandra Denise Major, 20, were both reported missing in two separate calls to police. It is unclear whether these girls knew each other or not, but it seems as if they didn't know each other. They just happened to be reported missing on the same day. Okay. 15-year-old Colleen had run away from home where she lived with her father and brother and was currently living on the streets at the time of her disappearance. Unfortunately, she met Gary Ridgway and she became his 15th victim. Her remains were found on May 26, 1984, so a couple years later. 20-year-old Sandra Denise Major was last seen getting into a truck near North 90th, 90th Street and Aurora Avenue North. Her body was found down a steep embankment on the outskirts of Mountain View Cemetery in Auburn on December 30, 1985, so three years after her disappearance. disappearance. Everyone take a deep breath. I know, it's a lot. I know. Dolores Laverne Williams, 17, is known to have disappeared around 2 p.m. on February 6, 1983, at Rainier Avenue South and South Ferdinand Street at a bus stop outside the Red Lion. There's a lot of information about that one. A lot of information. (laughs) Her remains were found on March 31, 1984, so about a year later, alongside three other victims near Star Lake Road in South King County. He's just, like, doubling up, tripling up, like... I guarantee you he's like, well, no one's found this body yet. Let me just dump this one yeah, in the same spot. That makes sense. Right? But then it's like, okay, but if somebody finds one, then they're going to find all. Yeah, exactly. Which is a little stupid. But they didn't find them for years after this, so it's like he's long gone at that point. Not yeah. Really, but... She was identified via dental records, actually, after Gary confessed to her murder in 2003. <laughs> <gasps> Ooh, it's a little bit of a hint, huh? We'll get to Ooh. that. <laughs> On March 3rd, 1983, 18-year-old Alma Ann Smith was last seen on Pacific Highway South when she ran into the infamous killer. Gary later admitted taking Alma to his home and strangling her there, unfortunately ending her life. He left her body in the woods that same evening, and she was found on April 2nd, 1984, so about a year later. On April 10th, 1983, 23-year-old Gail Lynn Matthews was last seen entering a truck along a highway, and her body was discovered in September of that same year. But it wasn't identified to be her until two years later. Four days later, on April 14th, 1983, Andrea Marion Childers, 19, was reported missing. Her body would not be discovered until many years later, in October of 89. I know, it's wild. 
We're still in 83 currently, but I keep talking about dates that they're discovered. I know right. that everyone's... Hopefully, I'm not confusing anyone. <laughs> oh, it's just, like, it's just overwhelming. It's yeah. Yeah. On April 17th, 1983, Sandra K. Gabbert, 17, and Kimmy Kai, or Mimi, Pitzer, 16, were both reported missing by their families. Sandra was last seen off of Pacific Highway South near South 142nd Street, and her remains were found a year later at the Star Lake Road area, a wooded, isolated spot. Sandra was known by many to be a free spirit and a friendly person to all. Mimi was last seen in downtown Seattle, and her remains were found nine months later outside of Mountain View Cemetery near two other victims. <sighs> I'm almost, like, done listing victims, and then we're going to get back into some other stuff, and then I'm going to go back to victims. On April 30th, 1983, 18-year-old Mary Jane, or Marie M. Malver, was last seen by her boyfriend getting into a paint-patched pickup with a dark-haired man about 30 to 40 years old off of Pacific Highway South. So the pickup is consistent at this point. Marie's boyfriend attempted to follow the truck, sensing that something may be wrong, but he lost him at an intersection. Four days later, her boyfriend reported the incident to police, who found the truck parked less than a half mile away at a house. What? This house belonged to Gary Ridgway. Oh, gotcha, bastard. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs> police questioned Gary at his home about his knowledge of Marie, and he stated that he did not know her or have any information as to her, where as to her whereabouts. Police saw no further reason to investigate Gary. They were like, oh, okay, have a nice day. Marie's remains would not be found for nearly... 30 years <gasps> next to another victim after Gary confessed to her murder. Oh my god. That's... Ugh. I bet that boyfriend felt so bad. Yeah, I know. Isn't that awful? He followed, He tried to follow the truck and then he lost him. So sad. I know, it's terrible. That's li Okay, this is literally like four days later and Gary's like already like back at it. Like the police just fucking questioned you. He's like, oh, got away with it. <sighs> On May 3rd, 1983, 21-year-old Carol Ann Holman Christensen was last seen after lunch when she walked out of the Barn Door Tavern on Pacific Avenue South. We've heard that street name before. Mm -hmm. She had been planning on returning later that evening as she was a waitress there and she had a shift that night. Carol was a young mother separated from her husband and she was an extremely hard worker wanting to give her and her daughter a good life. On Mother's Day, only five days after her disappearance, a family was hunting for some mushrooms in a wooded section of Maple Valley and came across her body, dunked in water and reclothed backwards. Which is really interesting. That's strange. It is also, strange. underrated heroes, mushroom farmers or whatever. Yeah. Mushroom hunters. <laughs> mushroom hunting. Because, well, because <laughs> it was also an Andre Ticatilla, too, which is funny that it's oh, like really? twice in one that. episode. Yeah, it was mushroom hunters that, that discovered one of the bodies. Interesting. Yeah. Or they had seen, was it, I don't remember if it's the people that had witnessed him covered in blood or something, oh, but yeah. they had gone into the woods to mushroom hunt. And it just, it's just such <laughs> a, a unique hunt. thing. It's that so you would innocent. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, along with her being reclothed backwards and in the water, she actually had one shoe on the wrong foot, and the other shoe was actually never found. That's really interesting that he would reclothe her body. Yeah, very interesting, considering his other victims have been nude. Yeah. She also had a bag placed over her head. Um, in addition to this, two cleaned fish were laid across her body. She had raw sausage wrapped around her and a wine bottle in her hand. What? A very interesting scene. And she was a sex worker? She wasn't like a... It just said she I don't think missing, she... Right? No, I, she wasn't. She was a waitress. 
So do you think that maybe it's like, you know what I mean? You know what I think? I think that he had just gotten questioned by the fucking police and he couldn't control this urge. And so he had to make it look like it wasn't consistent with his other victims because they were onto him or whatever. Yeah, it's because he's so smart. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I don't think she was a sex worker. I mean, it said she was a waitress, so. Yeah. Definitely doesn't fit the... MO. Yeah, right? But that's what I was wondering. I was like, did, did he treat her body differently because she wasn't a sex worker? Oh, I see what you're saying. Interesting. I'm not sure. That's all I've said about her. But he's got these urges. On May 15th, 18-year-old Martina Teresa Otherly was last seen. Martina was born in Fjord, West Germany, while her father was stationed with the U.S. Army. I don't know if I said that right, so I'm sorry. Anybody think, listening in Germany? I think Fjord. 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 The family lived in Germany from 1965 to 1968, and then they returned to the States and settled in Washington. Washington. (laughs) Martina went to Bethel High School and joined the Army National Guard while she was actually still in high school. Oh, wow. She was actually medically discharged before her six-week training was up. Uh, She enjoyed roller skating, basketball, baseball, and absolutely loved swimming. Oh, so she was super active. Yeah, for sure. Love hearing that. After she was reported as missing, Martina would become, unfortunately, the 28th victim of the Green River Killer. The next day, on May 23rd, 1983, Cheryl Lee Wims was last seen in the Central District in Seattle, the same day as her 19th birthday. Yeah. This was not the first time that her mother, Ruth, who was a nurse, unfortunately would live through this terrible tragedy. (gasps) No. Cheryl's older sister, Deborah, would disappear under eerily similar circumstances years later. Was it ever confirmed if it was him? Cheryl's skeletal remains were found just north of Seattle-Tacoma International Airport in 1984. Deborah was last seen on October 25th, 1990, when she left her apartment to go to a supermarket on Pacific Highway South. (sighs) After her disappearance, her car was found abandoned at a Safeway store at South 216 and Pacific Highway. Deborah was a sex worker and had a substantial criminal record dating back to the 70s for crimes including auto theft, grand larceny, and prostitution. Of course, when she was reported missing, Gary Ridgway was listed as a suspect after he was identified as being at the scene of the victim's last known location. What? Deborah was never found, and Gary has never admitted to being involved in her disappearance. This case is still cold to this day. Do you think that, because he clearly, like, confesses later, do you think that, like, maybe he just doesn't remember her? Or do you think that he really didn't? I mean, it has to be one or the other. Right? Because he was willing to admit to however other many ones that he admitted to. Right. So I don't know. Because, like, Gacy kind of did that, too, where it was like, oh, yeah, that one. I forgot about that one. Or, you know. I forgot that guy's name or whatever. Yeah, but he pretty much confessed to everything that he could. Yeah, I think it, I mean, I don't know. That really is really unfortunate, though, because, like, her mom's never going to get that That justice. Yeah. Gosh, that's crazy. (sighs) I know. feel bad for the mother. I know, me too. On May 31st, Yvonne Shelley Antosh, 19, was last seen at the Ben Carroll Motel. Yvonne came to Washington from Vancouver, British Columbia. There is not much else known about her. However, her body was found just off of Highway 18 near I-90 about a year later. Carrie Ann Rios, 15, went missing. Carrie had lived in multiple group homes and was reported to have gotten along well with others. She had dreams of becoming a model and played the flute in her high school marching band. 
Carrie seemingly vanished around May or June of 1983, but since she was not living at home, there's not an exact date on when she went missing. A lot of these victims, it's just really sad that they never got the opportunity to, like, live on their own and, like, even become adults, honestly. Like, because, sure, like, they're running away from a bad home life or because they want to live on their own and they think they're adults, you know, whatever (laughs) the circumstances might be, but... For them to be, like, when you're, some of them were living in foster mm-hmm. or, you know, halfway homes or shelters, and it's like, they're just trying to get their shit together. Exactly. It's really sad. Or didn't have the opportunity to, you know, in some cases. Yeah, no, that's absolutely horrible. Like, they they go out thinking that they're going to have, like, this amazing, like, better life for themselves. Everything's going to be okay once I'm by myself and on my own, and then this piece of shit, you know, yeah. takes advantage of that. Carrie unfortunately became a victim of Gary Ridgway, and her remains were found nearly two years after she disappeared, near five other victims in the Star Lake neighborhood. Oh my gosh, this guy. On June 8th, 1983, Constance Elizabeth Neon, 20, was last heard from by her boyfriend, saying she was picking up her check at her place of work and would see him in 20 minutes. Unfortunately, she was never seen or heard from again after this interaction. Constance's car was later found parked on South 188th Street and Pacific Highway South. Her remains were found four months later, just south of SeaTac Airport, near three other victims. I know. On July 18, 1983, 22-year-old Kelly Marine Ware was last seen in the Central District of Seattle. Her remains were found three months later by the airport near three other victims as well. Only one week later, on July 25th, 22-year-old Tina Marie Thompson was last seen near South 144th Street and Pacific Highway South. Her remains were found nine months later near the intersection on Highway 18 and I-90 near two other victims. <sighs> okay. Ready for the next one? This one's going to be a little bit longer. Yes. In early 1983, 14-year-old Wendy Stevens ran away from home. Several years before she ran away, Wendy was living with her mother, Cecile, and stepfather, Alan, in a Denver suburb. Cecile stated about Wendy, quote, People weren't strangers to her. Everyone was a potential friend. I was always afraid for her because she was that way. It's like, ugh. Like, that sucks that you have to be fucking worried about your kid because they're outgoing and personable. Yeah, and they have the, they, they don't, they don't have low social meters. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Cecile began to worry when Wendy started acting out of the ordinary. She stated, quote, She was going through those rebellious ages. She would just take off, sometimes for weeks, and there would be no forethought. She would leave in the winter without a coat. End quote. At one point, Wendy left home and was gone for a month, and when she came back, her mother stated, quote, It was just really strange, because Wendy acted like, quote, Nothing was wrong. Nothing had taken place. She hadn't been absent. So, essentially, she showed up one day, like, she had never left. Like, it was just, like, no time had passed. Yeah, that's pretty strange after being gone for 30 days. Yeah, exactly. Almost immediately after this conversation, in August of 1983, Wendy ran away from home, and unfortunately, this would be the last time her family would see her alive. Her mother remembers, quote, I was really afraid for her because she was so gregarious and because she had become so undependable. I didn't know what to make of any of it. Wendy Stevens' remains were found on March 21st, 1984, but she remained unidentified until October of 2020, (gasps) when police showed up at Cecile's house. 
in 2020. Showed up at Cecile's house to deliver the news that they had identified her, I'm assuming through DNA or something. Oh my gosh. Yes. Wendy's father, Carlos, his, her bio dad, had passed away in 2014, Aww. never getting to know what happened to his daughter 30 years prior. That's so sad. Wendy would be known to be the youngest victim of Gary Ridgway. She was 14. That is so fucking sad. 2020. They waited almost 40 years to I hear. can't, I mean, at, I mean, this, the smallest bit of a silver lining is that Cecile knows. Yeah. Like, God, she didn't so pass without knowing. Yeah. There's chocolate, and then there's lint chocolate. Chocolate that has a silky smooth and velvety texture has since become synonymous with lint since its conception in 1879. If you're looking for that perfect Valentine's Day gift, lint has you covered in chocolate. Click the link in the show notes below to receive a 150-piece lender custom mix gold tote and valentine's tote all for just 38 dollars. this offer is valid between january 30th through february 14th get yours today on august 18th 1983 april dawn butram 17 disappeared she had moved from spokane to seattle and she was last seen when police spoke to her in the 7300 block of rayner avenue south did they spokane to her <laughs> sorry her remains would be found later that same year. 26-year-old Debbie May Apernathy had moved from Texas to Seattle just weeks prior to her disappearance on September 5th, 1983. Her goal in moving was to have a fresh start with her boyfriend and her son, but unfortunately she would become the, a victim of the Green River Killer after her disappearance. On September 12th, 1983, 17 days before her 20th birthday, Tracy Ann Winston disappeared. Tracy was a known athlete, playing Little League as a kid, and was on the high school basketball team. She was last seen around 6 p.m. at the Northgate Mall. Her body would be found in 1986 in Cottonwood Park at South 238th Street. We're going to keep going. Maureen Sue Feeney, 19, was last seen on September 28, 1983, just seven days before her 20th birthday. Maureen was raised with eight siblings, and she was actually planning on moving out of the family home a month after she would go missing. Oh, that's so sad. Maureen had a love for animals and nature and hoped to someday work with children. Her sister eventually would write a book about Maureen... <laughs> <laughs> her sister would eventually write a book about Maureen and the effects her murder had on the family entitled, quote, The 39th Victim, a memoir. Hmm. Maureen's remains were found in May of 1986. Now back to the current. On October 11th, 1983, Mary Sue Bellow was last seen five weeks before her 26th birthday. This is definitely a coincidence, but very interesting. Yeah. She was known as a treasure to her family and was well-liked by all that knew her. Her remains were found one year and one day later, a victim of Gary Ridgway. Pammy Annette Avent, 16, was last seen on October 26th. Her remains would not be found for nearly 20 years, and she was identified via dental records. We're almost done. 22-year-old Denise Louise Plager, or Misty, was last seen on October 30th, 1983, at a bus stop in the South Seattle suburbs. 
She had a brother and two young children, her youngest being only two years old when she went missing. Oh my God. I know. Her remains were found the following February, a victim of Gary Ridgway. <sighs> All right, everyone take a deep breath. We're done with that for a second. That's like zombifying. I know. Like you just zone out listening to it because it's, it's so, so much. much. It's terrible. Sad. Thanks for hanging in there with us, guys. <laughs> I know. I feel like I can't come up with any other adjective than like, that's so sad. Oh my gosh. That's yeah. so sad. But it's just hard like to try to like compute like, yeah. in your brain no, for sure. how many victims there are. And yeah. Just it's a lot. They each had lives and they each had families and they yeah. each have their own set of special circumstances that brought them to that moment. And yeah. it's like... And I mean, the, the main research that I did, it was like giant gaps in between, but I definitely didn't want to like leave any victims out because of course they deserve to be talked about, you right. know, them, at least a sentence or two about them. So that's right. why I wanted to put all that info in there. Yeah. In November, police once again spoke to Gary about the murders when he failed to kill a hitchhiker that he picked up. <gasps> Let's hear about this. Gary claimed to have choked the woman after she attacked him, the same story as before. She bit me. Police tried to get him to admit anything, but he denied any knowledge of the victims, and authorities lacked any solid evidence that he was the perpetrator. Gary later admitted that when he was questioned the first time about Marie's disappearance, in order to conceal scratch marks that she had given him on his arms, he leaned up against a fence and put his hand behind his back what? so that the police wouldn't see he would later admit, like, oh, shit, like, the first time you talked to me, like, about this girl, like, yeah. she gave me those scratch marks. He also admitted that once the police left, he burned his arm with battery acid to disguise the marks. What? Ow. With fucking battery acid? Like, you realize those Just will heal, right? Just light on fucking fire. Well, like I guess he was, I guess he was thinking, like, oh my, okay, if they come back, like, <clears throat> I'm not going to be in the same situation. I might as well get rid of these right. now. Like, oh my god. Battery acid. Fucking psycho. You couldn't have just, like, drawn all over your arm with, like, Sharpie or something, but like, oh, like, I was bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This, no, I'm just practicing special effects. Yeah. <laughs> like, What? <laughs> What happened with the, what was the story which, with the hitchhiker, though? So, it was pretty much the same story as before. They had said that he choked her, and then he was like, well, she attacked me, and it was self-defense, and the police that didn't have it? any and solid they, evidence. They were like, okay. And she didn't, I guess, press charges or anything? I guess or not, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Oh, okay. It was, like, unidentified. Like, it wasn't, like, a giant story. Yeah. Now, you guessed it, Gary continued to kill after this, and on December 23rd, 1983, he would come across his next victim, Lisa Lorraine Yates. So there's not a lot of information on Lisa. Some sources stated that she was either 18 or 19 at the time of her disappearance, uh, but Gary did admit to her later, her murder later on. On February 6th, 1984, Gary picked up 16-year-old Mary Exeta West. Exeta. I don't know how to say that middle name. Or... That's a really cool name, though. Yeah. E-X-Z. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was actually a month shy of her 17th birthday when she went missing. Her remains were found in September of 85, the following year, in Seward Park at the base of a tree. Mm. On March 21st, 1984, Cindy Ann Smith was last seen hitchhiking along Pacific Highway South. Her remains were found nearly three years later when three boys stumbled across partially buried skeletal remains in a ravine behind the Green River Community College. Hell no. She was 17. No, not as, no, like as a kid. Ugh. I know. 
three kids okay. to, like, have to witness that. Yeah, that's terrible. Get this. In May of 1984, Gary, still being considered a person of interest in the case due to his history with prostitution, called police and offered to assist them in their search... By performing a polygraph test. Oh, my God. Suggesting he could be ruled out upon passing it. Oh, my God. Why aren't they like this? It's just a stupid machine. It's just this machine. I'm smarter than a machine. Get this. He fucking passed it. No, he didn't. And he was let go as a suspect. Shut up. He fucking passed it. Because he's such a dummy. I'm not trying to be rude, but like with an 82 IQ, how the fuck did you do that? It's probably because it's the lack of empathy. He doesn't have any emotion. There's no emotion. He doesn't. He doesn't, he doesn't get, get scared. Anxious. He doesn't get anxious. Oh, that's fucking. He passed it. Ugh. And now they're like, we have no choice but to rule him out as a suspect. Like, obviously, like polygraph tests aren't super reliable. But back then, that's like pretty much all they had to go yeah. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh my god, what? <sighs> I know. Stupid machine. By 1985, seemingly because he was still under suspicion from police, women actually stopped disappearing, and Gary seemed to have stopped murdering altogether. Did he get married? It was he got married. Oh. <laughs> it was married. also around the same time oh that Gary God. met a woman by the name of Judith Lorraine Lynch, also recorded as Judith Mawson, and the couple married three years later in 1988. So, yeah, he got married. Oh, my God. Okay. Ugh. Hey, it's just, but... It's predictable. It's but at just, least he got it got him to stop fucking moitering. Or not, not really, because we're going to keep going. What was her name? Judith. Okay, Judith. I see you, Judith. Number three. <laughs> Another one. On October 11th, 1986, so this is one year into his relationship with Judith. They're not married yet. But this has also been a year since the last murder. Patricia or Patty Michelle Barzak went missing, but since the disappearances had stopped for nearly two years at this point, this was not immediately thought to be the Green River Killer. Patty was 19 at the time of her disappearance, and her remains were found in February of 93 on Highway 18 near the Seattle International Raceway. They initially didn't think it was him, but she was also found by all of his other bodies. Yeah, exactly. Although police... Well, they didn't find her till 93, though. Yeah, Although police thought the killings had slowed or stopped, they were not giving up on their search for the infamous Green River Killer, and detectives Reichardt and Keppel were looking in a new direction for information, the same guys from earlier. Mm -hmm. They began interviewing incarcerated killers for any suggestions or advice on what this guy was probably like. Mm -hmm. You know, you did it. You'll see what this guy's about. Mm -hmm. During the time they were interviewing these people, they received a letter in the mail from an inmate that was pretty famous at the time. <gasps> Is this... Keppel remembers the first time he heard that the inmate was reaching out to him, saying, quote, It was a letter from a wannabe consultant and the most unlikely person I ever expected to be of assistance in the Green River murders. The letter came from a cell on death row in Florida. The sender was Theodore Robert Bundy. I was stunned. Ted of the West. Ted of the West. Teddy. Teddy Teddy. Coming in clutch. Clutch Teddy Teddy. That's awful. But yeah, so they were like, okay, we're going to interview like serial killers. And Bundy was like, yo, I have, I might be of some assistance. Can I get down on that? Yeah, let me just write you a letter really quick. 
Well, at this point, of course, if we all know Ted Bundy, he had already been imprisoned for several years, and he was awaiting his execution date that was set for 1989. Mm. So this is like five years before he's supposed to get the... The The chair. Yeah, the chair. Get the chair. (laughs) Get the lobotomy. (laughs) Having a similar M.O. as the Green River Killer made way for Bundy to be a a real big asset in this case, because he did the necrophilia learning as well. It's kind of gross, but he Mm -hmm. did. He actually became a regular interviewee of Keppel and Reichert, and even offered his opinion on the psychology of the still-active killer, as well as his motivations and behaviors. According to Riker, Ted also shared several things in common with Gary, especially in regard to mindset. Riker stated, quote, First off, there's no remorse. He doesn't have feelings towards anybody, his family included, and that's what I saw in Bundy and what I saw in Ridgeway. He also later explained, quote, Like Mr. Bundy, Mr. Ridgeway craved attention and control and was prideful when discussing his killings. When detectives presented him with an unsolved murder to see if he would confess it, he told them, why, if it isn't mine, because I have pride in what I do. I don't want to take it from anybody else. Obviously, these are quotes that came out after they realized who he was. (laughs) But isn't that interesting? He's like, you want to confess to this? And he's like, no, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. I take pride in what I do. That guy's sloppy. Exactly. And and who else said that? It was fucking Patrick Kearney. Oh, Kearney. Yeah. Yeah. They were showing him Randy Kraft's victims and he was like, that wasn't me, but I admire his work. (laughs) <laughs> that's what he said i admire his work he does good work oh my it god it runs well <laughs> oh my god these when, guys when btk stole the radio <laughs> runs good runs good god that's <laughs> so bumbly bumbly <laughs> such a bumbly hoe <sighs> Ugh. now during one interview bundy suggested that the green river killer was most likely revisiting his dump sites to perform necrophilia on the corpses he advised investigators that if they found a fresh grave, they should stake it out and wait for the killer to return. Why did they fucking think of that earlier? Okay, thank you. Teddy. Turns out, Bundy's theories were absolutely correct, and police were able to use them to collect samples and provide evidence for an arrest warrant. Mm. But they don't know who he is yet, they just have DNA. Right. Police continued to work on the case and found out that Gary Ridgway was last seen with two of the victims before they disappeared. Mm. As a matter of fact, Gary had a more recent victim than the police knew about. Roberta Joseph, or Bobby Joe Hayes, age 20, went missing on February 7, 1987, after she was released from the custody of the Portland, Oregon Police Department. She so had, like, she gotten left, yeah, arrested, and then... And it the, was, but she got out, and then he it was believed her up. She was returning back to Seattle when she went missing, which is where he found her. Her remains were discovered over four years later when a Washington State Park employee came across skeletal remains at the end of a dead-end road. She would become the 43rd victim of Gary Ridgway. Because Gary was the last person allegedly seen with two of the victims, police were able to get a warrant to search his home and vehicles on April 7, 1987. It was at this time that they also requested hair and a hair and saliva sample, and Gary cooperated because he passed the polygraph, so what are you going to do? I can beat science, too. (laughs) Well, unfortunately, due to insufficient DNA testing at this time, they were unable to use this to arrest him because all they could do was collect the sample. They couldn't test it yet. The technology was not Mm. out yet. Uh, so where's uh where's Judith? Where's she going in this yeah, whole time? Judith, the going on with Judith. Eye on you, Judith. What's going on with Judith? What's going on, Judith? <laughs> Judith. <laughs> Judith, Judith. <laughs> well, it's now 1987, and him and Judith have been dating for two years. 
Judith later agreed to a TV interview way later on when she stated that when she moved into Gary's home, there was no carpet. Investigators later suggested to her that they believe there was no carpet because he must have used it to wrap up a body. He, like, ripped it up to use it to dispose of a body. I have no carpet in my house because I used it to bury bodies. In the same interview, Judith also described that Gary would leave for work super early in the morning, seemingly to take advantage of overtime pay. But then she connected the dots that he most likely was killing during the time he was out of the home, even in the morning. She also claimed that she had not suspected Gary to be the perpetrator when he began to be questioned. Like, even when they were questioning him, she's like, that's definitely not him. She didn't even know who the Green River Killer was because she didn't keep up with any news outlets or media or anything. Although he was on the police's radar, again, they had no way of testing the DNA, and Gary was able to remain a free man for many years. This is also around the time that his murders were very sporadic, uh, seemingly because he didn't want to risk getting caught by killing anyone, but it was also very clear that he gave in to his impulses every once in a while because that was not his last victim. Marta Collis Reeves was born in Hungary in 1953 and made her way to the United States and to Seattle in her adult life. She was last seen on March 5, 1990, along Pacific Highway South, and unfortunately, she would become a victim of Gary. Marta was either 36 or 37 at the time of her murder. I still don't get, like, I mean, I get that, like, you can't be everywhere all the time, like, 100%, but if he's a suspect, then, like, why isn't he being tailed? Exactly. Why isn't he being, well, I mean, they don't really have it, like, I guarantee you they just couldn't get in a war- warrant to do that, you know, like. Yeah, because it's all this, it could, it's extra police money. It's, yeah, police and money it's and uh, circumstantial. Yeah, but, I don't know. I just. And he passed the polygraph, don't forget. Uh, don't forget, <laughs> he's smarter than the average bear. <laughs> Her body was found later off of Highway 410, which is interesting because. Creepy. That is weird, right? But we have a Loop 410. Yeah, that's we true. We don't have a Highway 410. Gary managed to keep from killing for many years after this, and it wasn't until January of 1998 that 38-year-old Patricia Yellowrobe was last seen. Now, keep in mind, he's sporadic, he's taken a bunch of years off, and these last two victims have been in their 30s. Completely different, different. than his other MO. Because you know why? Because he's trying not to get fucking caught. Yeah. He can't help it, but he's trying not to get caught, so he's trying yeah. to ch- ch- switch it up or whatever. It's just an impulse. The location of her disappearance is unknown, and her body was found on the morning of August 6th, 1998. She had been found in South Seattle, just off of Des Moines Way South. Her death was actually ruled as an accidental overdose, and she was never listed as a victim of the Green River Killer until he confessed to her murder in 2003. Whoa. Two more women are listed as being victims of the Green River Killer, but they are both unidentified to this day. One girl who has been identified as Jane Doe B-17 was between the ages of 14 and 18 and is known to have gone missing between December 1980 and January 1984. Her remains were found on January 2nd of 86, but again, never identified. They don't even know when she was last seen. Yeah. Four years. Between, yeah. Between. That could be in 1980 to 1984 she was yeah, last seen. Exactly. <gasps> The other girl, known as Jane Doe B-20, was between the ages of 13 to 24 and is thought to have gone missing between 1973 and 1993. 20 so a 20-year gap. gap. They have no idea. Her remains were found on August 21st, 2003, and she has never been identified either. So that being said, if anybody has any information, call your local authorities. Gary Ridgway is suspected of, but not charged with, murdering six more victims attributed to the Green River Killer. In each case, Gary 
either did not confess to the victim's death or authorities have not been able to corroborate their suspicion with substantial evidence. Mm. The first of these victims is Amina Agishif, 35, who disappeared on July 7th in 82 and was located on April 20th of 84. Gary denied killing her, and she, again, doesn't fit the profile of any of his any of his first sets of victims, considering her age and the fact that she was not a sex worker. Mm-hmm. However, there's a bunch of girl, like, the people in the later years that were older. Yeah. Other sources stated that she was, in fact, Gary's first victim, which explains the lack of similarity with his other victims, because oh. it was in 82. Yeah. She was known to be a part of the Green River murders because the first five victims were found in the Green River in Kent, Washington. Mm-hmm. Amina was a mother of two children, a Montessori school teacher, and a waitress. Cassie Ann Lee, 16, was reported missing on August 28, 1982, and her remains were never discovered. Although he has never been charged with her murder, Gary did confess to killing Cassie. She was married to her pimp, and they had actually only been married for four months when she disappeared off of Pacific Highway South. Mm. Gary stated that he strangled her in 1982 and left her body near a drive-in theater off of the SeaTac Strip. Law enforcement has been unable to locate her remains, so he was never charged with her murder. Whoa. Even though he confessed Even to though it. Even though he, and he said there's no where it was. Yeah. Wow. 16-year-old Tammy Charlene Lyles went missing on June 9th, 1983, and was discovered in April of 1985. She was identified via dental records, but it is unclear why Gary was not charged with her murder. Um, probably sufficient lack of sufficient evidence, mm-hmm. like I said earlier. Nothing like DNA to connect yeah. or any of that stuff, too, right? Kelly K. McGinnis was last seen on June 29, 1983, standing by the street in the area of the Three Bears Motel off Pacific Highway South. Kelly had two children, a boy she gave up for adoption, and a four-month-old baby girl. Kelly's remains have never been located, and she was 18 at the time of her disappearance. 18-year-old Angela Marie Gerdner was reported missing in July of 1983, and her remains were discovered on April 22, 1985. Gary is a suspect in Angela's murder, but was never officially charged. Patricia Ann Osborne, 19, went missing on October 20th, 1983, and her remains have never been found, although Gary did confess to her murder in 2003. Gary Ridgway has been considered a suspect in the disappearances or murders of several other women not attributed at the time to the Green River Killer. Charges have never been filed for these crimes. An unidentified black female, possibly named Michelle, disappeared in December of 1980. Her body was never discovered. Christy Lynn Vorak, 13, disappeared on Halloween night, 1982. Her body was never discovered either. 15-year-old Patricia Ann LeBlanc went missing on August 12, 1983, and her remains have never been found. Rosemarie Curran, 16, was last seen on August 26, 1987, and her body was discovered just five days later on August 31st. Gary was never charged with her murder due to lack of evidence. On April 24, 1990, 16-year-old Darcy Wade went missing, and her body was never recovered. And lastly, 22-year-old Cora McGurk was last seen on July 12, 1991, and her body was never recovered. That is all the victims. That is so much. (sighs) Everyone take a deep breath. So much. I just wanted to give everybody a little line in there, you know, because they all deserve to be talked about, even if they were never discovered. That's so awful. His, like, murdering career spans, like, decades. Yeah, it does. And it's wild. And then I was just thinking about, like, even tying up some of these, you know, remains being connected to him or not, or 
that that is that was still going on and most weren't even known about or found or had been confessed to until 2000 yeah insane insane now although these murders were connected to or seemingly connected to gary it is known that his killings went down significantly after him and judith got married he later admitted during an interview in prison that while he was in the relationship with judith his kill rate went way down and he truly loved her of his 49 known victims, only three were killed after he, mur- after he married Judith. Yeah. Judith later told reporters, quote, I feel like I have saved lives by being his wife and making him happy. I mean, it's, it's true. Like sad to think about, too, sad. like, that she feels this, not like survivor's guilt, but what would be the opposite of that? I mean, know? almost, Yeah. Gary managed to lay low until the early 2000s, and due to DNA testing coming a long way, the samples were finally able to be tested, but it was not as cut and dry as authorities would have liked it to be. In March of 2001, investigators re-examined evidence from across the years the killer had been active. Beverly Himmick, a Washington State Patrol Crime Laboratory forensic scientist, told the New York Times, quote, It was a last-ditch effort. We didn't have a lot to work with, but we went through a lot of evidence again. We rinsed all the fingernails to look for trace evidence and swabbed the ligatures for cellular material. With one girl, we were able to find a few sperm clinging to her pubic hair. End quote. New DNA profiles from three victims were compared with a DNA taken from Gary Ridgway back in 1987, and it was a perfect match in all three cases. On November 30th, 2001, nearly two decades after the first murder, Gary was at the Kenworth Truck Factory where he worked as a spray painter when police arrived to arrest him. Gary was arrested in suspicion to the murders of Marcia Chapman, Opal Mills, Cynthia Hines, and Carol Ann Christensen. Three more victims, Wendy Cofield, Deborah Bonner, and Deborah Estes, were added to the indictment after forensic scientists identified microscopic spray paint smears as a specific brand and composition of paint used at the factory during the time frame when they were killed. Interesting. I know that's a lot to say, but that, yeah. Gary was still married to Judith at the time of his arrest, and she was absolutely shocked when she heard about her husband's long record of rape, murder, and necrophilia. Judith stated that Gary was the, quote, perfect husband and had always treated her, quote, like a newlywed, even 17 years into their marriage. Wow. It seems like he really did love her. I mean, he stopped doing these things. He probably felt pretty fulfilled. Although he stated that he truly loved Judith and being with her made him stop his horrendous crimes, he also admitted that he had been tempted to kill her at one point, but he decided not to because it might have increased his chances of getting caught. Ew! Yeah. What? Yeah. Oh, Take back what Judith. you said. <laughs> My bad, Judith. Sorry. Oh, no. Gary awaited trial in jail because after his arrest, he was denied bail due to evidence being sufficient enough to not allow it. Oh, well. Upon his arrest, David Riker, the law enforcement official that had been the one on the case for over 20 years at this point, released a statement saying, quote, We don't know if Ridgway is responsible for the deaths of any more women. However, we will continue to investigate all unsolved homicides that may be linked to him or to any other suspects. End quote. He also stated, quote, We have a lot of work to do to investigate these other cases to ensure we have the person who's responsible for the- those bodies. We may have some copycats. End quote. Thankfully, they didn't. That's good. Oh, God, that reminds me of uh, Berkowitz. I know. I was like, we're having a tough enough time catching one of them. Could you imagine if there were two? I know. (laughs) 
Early in August 2003, Seattle TV News reported that Gary had been moved from a maximum security cell at King County Jail to an undisclosed location. Mm. Other news reports stated that his lawyers, led by Anthony Savage, were closing a plea bargain that would spare him the death penalty in return for his confession to a number of murders. Now, it was almost two years later to the date, on November 5th, 2003, when Gary's case finally went to trial. So he just rotted for, like, two years. Two years, good. Although he claimed his innocence when he was arrested, Gary Ridgway pleaded guilty to 48 charges of aggravated first-degree murder, although he admitted to killing as many as 71 in total. What? He just... 48. 48 counts of first-degree murder. That trial. Could you imagine? How long it took? Yeah. And as part of the plea bargain, actually, um, this would spare him execution in exchange for his cooperation in locating the remains of his victims and providing other details. So that's why they were able to find all those victims. Also included in his plea, his agreement to plead guilty to any future cases where his confession could be substantiated by evidence. So if they found any other victims, he'd be like, oh yeah, by the way, I did that. Here's yeah. my confession. In his statement accompanying... In his statement accompanying... Accompanying... How do you... Whoa, how do you say that word? <laughs> how do you say that word? <clears throat> I hate when that happens to me. Accompanying... Accom- accompanying. No, damn it. Now that I can't think of it. Accompanying. Accompanying. In his statement with his plea... <laughs> Accompanying. I'm, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. Accompanying. Everyone knows what I'm trying to say. With his plea, Gary stated that all of his victims had been killed inside King County, Washington, and that he had transported and dumped the remains of two women near Portland to confuse the police. Gary also said in this statement, quote, I killed so many women, I have a hard time keeping them straight. End quote. Figured. He also admitted that he killed most of his victims in his house or truck before disposing of the bodies, adding that in most cases, he didn't even know the victims' names. So do you think that's another reason? Like, when Judith came to live with him, he couldn't really kill in his home anymore? Yeah. So then maybe that's why. I mean, he'd just rather be safe than sorry, you know? He also added, quote, Most of the time I killed them the first time I met them, and I do not have a good memory for their faces. Like, fuck you. They're just objects. That's why. They're just objects to him. He doesn't care. Explaining why he chose women he thought to be prostitutes, Gary said they, quote, were easy to pick up without being noticed. I knew they would not be reported missing right away and might never be reported missing. I picked up prostitutes because I thought I could kill as many of them as I wanted without getting caught. End quote. I hate that fucking logic. This guy does not have a soul. I hate that fucking logic. That doesn't make any fucking sense. Deputy Prosecutor Jeffrey Baird noted in court that the deal contained, quote, the names of 41 victims who would not be the subject of State versus Ridgeway if it were not for the plea agreement. Is that him trying to, like, justify not having him on the death death row, like the death penalty? Yeah, it's like, we got all of these confessions because we spared them death penalty. Right. King County Prosecuting Attorney Norm Mayling explained his decision to make the deal, quote, We could have gone forward with seven counts, but that is all we could have ever hoped to solve. At the end of that trial, whatever the outcome, there would have been lingering doubts about the rest of these crimes. This agreement was the avenue to the truth. And in the end, the search for the truth is still why we have a criminal justice system. Gary Ridgway does not deserve our mercy. He does not deserve to live. The mercy provided by today's resolution is is directed not at Ridgway, but towards the families who have suffered so much. Do you think that, like... If if you were in a similar set of circumstances that you would, for your own 
like sake of moving on that you would need a piece of paper that said this man has been convicted of killing that person that you loved like a loved one I don't know I don't know how I would feel I feel like if I heard that he admitted if he confessed to killing someone and then they put him on the on death row then I would be probably just as satisfied but that's just me you know I don't need like it legally to be in the fucking system I mean person's gone either way right that sounds really bad but that's just my personal opinion yeah you can't do anything about the fact that that person's not Mm -hmm. here Right, but like for me, I feel like I I would need that. You would. I would I would need either for him to confess or for them to link through DNA or yeah something like that. To... I wouldn't just let it be a cold case. That would that would no, bother me. Right, but what I'm saying is that there are so many victims that have either gone unidentified yeah. or not found or, um, you know what have you that weren't a part of the trial. Yeah, and I feel like my loved one not having their name on that piece of paper yeah. would bother me. It would bother me, too. Yeah. I, I, see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. On December 18th, 2003, King County Superior Court Judge Richard Jones sentenced Gary Ridgway to 48 life sentences with no possibility of parole and one life sentence to be served consecutively. He was also sentenced to an additional 10 years for tampering with evidence for each of the 48 victims, mm. adding 480 years to his 48 life sentences. Better start working on a fountain of youth there. Gary was able to lead investigators to 48 victims, including some that were not originally linked to the Green River Killer. Gary Ridgway confessed to more confirmed murders than any other American serial killer at the time. Whoa. Samuel Little surpassed him. Over a period of five months of police and prosecutor interviews, he confessed to 48 murders, 42 of which were on the police's list of probable, probable Green River killer victims. In one taped interview, he told investigators initially that he was responsible for the deaths of 65 women, but in another taped interview with David Reichert on December 31st, 2003, Gary claimed to have murdered 71 victims and confessed to have having had sex with them prior to killing them, a detail which he did not reveal until after his sentencing. Hmm. In his confession, he acknowledged that he targeted prostitutes. Prostitutes? That he targeted <laughs> prostitutes. Prostitutes. In his confession, he acknowledged that he targeted prostitutes because they were, quote, easy to pick up and that he hated most of them. Unquote. End quote. I don't know why I keep saying unquote. He also confessed that he had sex with his victims' bodies after he murdered them, but claimed he began burying the later victims so that he could resist the urge to commit necrophilia. Like, you have to do something to prevent yourself from committing necrophilia? (laughs) Damn. Damn. That sucks. It's fucking savage. Lastly, Gary suggested that he talk to and tried to make his victims comfortable before he committed the murders. In his own words, he stated, quote, I would talk to her and get her mind off the sex, anything she was nervous about, and think, you know, she thinks, oh, this guy cares, which I didn't. I just wanted to uh, get her in the vehicle and eventually kill her. End quote. What the fuck? Gary Gary called his horrible count of murders his real career. Oh! That's what he called it. After his sentencing, Gary Ridgway was placed in solitary confinement at the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla, Washington in January of 2004. In 2001, an additional body was found and linked to Gary, the body of Rebecca Becky Marrero, his 14th victim. Mm. 
After Gary entered a guilty plea for this murder, an agreement from his original plea, Becky's sister Mary told Superior Court Judge Mary E. Roberts that the family had agonized for 29 years wondering what happened to her sister. She stated, quote, I don't agree with this plea deal to spare his pathetic life, unquote, end quote. At this point, Gary turned in his chair to face her and the two other family members. Mary continued without a fucking beat. Hell yeah. Quote, he makes me sick to my stomach that he beat the system. She then told the judge, quote, if I had one thing to ask today, it would be to kill him. Gary then rose and began to apologize to the family, but was cut off by a man in the audience that said, quote, shut your mouth. Bad bitch. Like, shut your mouth, motherfucker. <laughs> shut <laughs> your mouth. Judge Roberts responded, quote, I'm sorry you had to wait this long for some truth and some justice. She then told Gary that in his case, quote, I can find no compassion and added an additional life sentence to his charges for this crime. In 2013, Gary claimed in an interview with news media outlet that the number of women he killed was more like 75 to 80, but this was not taken as truthful by a lot of people because he was probably just seeking attention. This is yeah. 10 years after he was sentenced. It's probably like, oh, I have more information. Continue mm-hmm. to talk to me. Yeah, exactly. So I'm sure you're wondering, or maybe you're not, about his son. Because remember, he had a baby. He did have a baby. Yes. Matthew Ridgway was 26 years old when his father was arrested, but he was actually not home at the time, as he was serving for the Marines in San Diego at the time of Gary's arrest. Today, he is in his late 40s and tends to stay out of the public eye. Good for him. Gary Leon Ridgway will be 74 on February 18th. <gasps> He's and is still alive. still serving out his days in solitary confinement in Walla Walla, being let out of his cell for one hour a day for four days a week. Not even all seven. Wow. While Gary was never seen for mental illness or diagnosed with anything, due to the fact that he frequently engaged in necrophilia, this suggests that he is a sexual serial killer. We've talked about that before. Mm. Um, It's also thought by many that he had had undiagnosed antisocial personality disorder, but I would have to disagree with this just because of his great long-term relationship with Judith. Right. Um, Gary was, in fact, a compulsive liar who was always trying to make everything up and make it how exactly how he wanted. Mm-hmm. He was very good at manipulation, and was especially good at lying, considered he passed the polygraph. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, like, really fucking weird. Because he doesn't own any feelings. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And lastly, he has also been labeled as a psychopath due to his lack of empathy, just like you said. Uh, yeah. But that term is outdated, as we know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that's the that's the story. <laughs> that is long intense. One. I know. God, I'm so glad I don't have to fucking think about him anymore. How many lives he affected, you know? Dude, 71 victims at minimum. At minimum. Every one of those people has two parents and siblings and, you know, like... Yeah. God, it's awful. And And they're so young. Thank you guys for bearing with us in this long episode. That was a lot, a lot of harsh content and a lot of, you know, hard things to listen to. But, you know, it's, again, I, I always stand by the fact that I want to include every victim because they deserve to have their stories told i don't think i think that your phrasing was appropriate as well yeah so. i try to you know we try to be respectful with things like that i yeah. want to say something like really ugly um but still you know it's a lot of stuff it's hard to yeah. listen to especially when it's back to back like that i think the last one that i had that was back to back like that was patrick kearney yeah and at one point you were like god are we like done with this it's a lot i was I like know. i know and that that was a two-parter and you stopped like at the last victim i think and then because we it was had to. still it was, like, an hour yeah, yeah it was like an exactly. hour hour and some change yeah but um i don't know i don't i mean he had a terrible childhood like don't get me wrong you know um but he also had an older brother 
And, you know, we always say that. It's like, why is one person the rotten apple and the other one's not? You know, mm-hmm. they both had terrible childhoods and it's so unfortunate, but you, you can't feel bad for the adult that made these decisions. Yeah. <clears throat> he it's... literally said, I want to kill prostitutes and that's what I'm going to do. And then that's mm-hmm. what he did. Like, yeah. he didn't just, like you know, self-defense one day and then killed it kind of like Eileen Warnos and then realized he liked it. Like, it was, like, his intention going into it. Right. God, it's awful. So I don't know about his psyche. I mean, it's definitely... I think it's definitely a lot of nurture. um, Yeah, I think it's a lot of nurture, too. I feel like, yeah. And again, you know, and I know that I joked at the beginning about middle child syndrome, but it, I mean... Oh, yeah, he had a younger brother, too. Yeah, that, you know these other kids are probably, I don't know, maybe he thought that they were experiencing something or from his perspective, he was, he was experiencing something different than his other two siblings. And then that's why he felt the need to act out more. Yeah, definitely. I don't know. Well, man, it was, uh, it was fun hanging out with you. My butt's asleep. (laughs) Mine too. That was a doozy. I'm starving. Absolutely. Thank you guys for joining us again. We hope you're enjoying the mental breakdowns as well. We had one come out, um, Monday and then this case will be out, you know, when it comes out and we're just gonna keep doing it i have a couple already cases that are already like research i'm ready to record and just put this all out there so i just started looking into the case that i want to do and um i'm it's we say this every time we're gonna do something a little different yeah. like it's gonna be different than my next one's gonna be ones. really different yeah, yeah so i'm really excited cool. um for this for the upcoming cases Woo-hoo. and yeah just thank you guys so much for listening to us again all of our instagram handles all of our Instagram handles. All of our handles are Diagnosing a Killer, except for Twitter, which is at Killer Diagnosis. Donate to the Patreon if you'd like. Um, we love being able to buy some stickers and, you know, stuff for you guys. And, um, you know, if you want to sponsor us, let us know. Click the link in our show notes if you are interested in anything that we have to offer. Those do not expire unless we say otherwise on the ad. Mm-hmm. But that is all I have. I am starving. Me too. We're going to go eat dinner. All right. Okay. Love, love you. you. Bye. Bye. Oh, shit. (laughs) Looking for a perfect gift for that special someone? Canvas Prints has a wide variety of items that can be personalized just for you with simply sending in a photo. Whether you're looking for a personalized pillow or a meaningful photo collage, Canvas Prints offers artist quality at affordable prices. With easy-to-use design tools and state-of-the-art printing capabilities, they help you create masterpieces that will last a lifetime without breaking the budget. You make the memories. Canvas prints will help you keep them. Click the link in the show notes below for free shipping on orders of $49 or more between now and February 5th.